Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, good friends. Good to see you and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Well, we're only six weeks into the new year, and already there have been some significant changes in our nation's capital. A new Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, finally has got the job, but only with a slim majority. A new GOP majority in the House, who so far look more like the Keystone Cops than a well-oiled machine. A new Democratic majority in the Senate, so everything no longer depends on that cranky old senator from West Virginia. A new chief of staff in the White House, Jeff Zients, with a hard job of stepping into the worn-out shoes of Ron Klain. And a driven Joe Biden, riding high with new purpose and new energy after last week's blockbuster State of the Union. But nothing in Washington escapes the attention of today's podcast guest, New Yorker Magazine staff writer Susan Glasser. Susan chronicles what's happening in Washington in her New Yorker weekly column, Letter from Biden's Washington. And she joins us on today's podcast. Susan Glasser, welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Good to talk to you again. Oh, I'm great. Great to be with you, Bill. Thank you so much. So your weekly newsletter uh, with The New Yorker, uh, a letter from Biden's Washington. Susan, I guess you'd have to say, we'd have to say it's more than ever Biden's Washington after the State of the Union last week, right? Well, it's really, it's quite something to see how, uh, you know, Biden has a long history of playing a bad hand well. And interestingly enough, he seems to have really, uh, in some ways, the adversity of Republicans taking control of the House of Representatives has given him, it appears, the foil uh, that sometimes a politician needs and craves. And uh, I think he very effectively, you know, sort of used the extreme elements of the House Republicans last week in a State of the Union to show himself as a sort of a presidential figure looming above it all. Yeah. And, you know, I I, I think that with all the reporting about the theatrics, right, you know, the the white fur coat and the liar, liar and all that, uh, that there wasn't enough, I felt, people sometimes missed his message, which was to the Republicans, hey, look, we we got a lot of stuff done the last two years. And we can get some good stuff done and big stuff done in the next two years if we work together. I mean, there's this constant call for bipartisanship on his part, which certainly is quaint, Susan. But is it real these days? (laughs) I mean, I I know his call for it is real, is the reality of it. Well, that's right. I mean, look, what what Biden would say, and I think there's some truth to this, is that it's not bipartisanship as much as it is – uh, a kind of willingness to work across the aisle in service of goals that each side supports, right? Mm-hmm. And that is actually a somewhat different approach. I think he would say it's actually get done ship, 
uh, yeah, and, yeah. you know, get something done ship. And, you know, that Washington in recent years has sort of like thrown up its hand, you know, at the notion of gridlock and sort of said essentially, well, look, what can we do? You know, things are so crazy and partisan and divided here. And Biden, you know, because he spent so much of his career in Washington in an earlier era when the incentives of politics were fundamentally different, when the incentives of politics were, you had to have a record to run on. You had to show that yeah. you got things done. Yeah. And that provided the fuel and the incentive uh, for Democrats and Republicans, even say in the midst of the very divisive polarizing Reagan era in the 1980s, uh, both sides still had uh, the common need and the imperative to produce results that they could then take to the voters. And that's kind of the tradition that Biden comes out of. And I think you're right that there were two goals in that State of the Union speech. One was communicating to the American public, hey, actually, I have surmounted uh, the partisanship in Washington to a certain extent and compiled a very impressive legislative record that you didn't think I could do. And mm -hmm. that is fulfilling the promise of my presidency and ticking off the list, whether it's the bipartisan infrastructure deal, the, the bipartisan CHIPS Act uh, that essentially is bringing uh, significant components of manufacturing back to the United States. Uh, it is the uh, climate change uh, provisions in uh, the not necessarily correctly named Inflation Reduction Act. So he, right. he is making the pitch for his accomplishments, which is important, by the way, because politically, he has a problem there. And a Washington Post survey released right before the State of the Union underscored what that problem is. 60% uh, of those polled 60%, which means a lot of Democrats as well, said they didn't think Biden had accomplished a lot as president. So he has to communicate what he's accomplished. But then the other piece is, what is he going to do going forward with actually divided government now? Mm -hmm. And that speaks to your original question, can they actually do anything in the context of divided government? My personal view is they're not going to be doing all that much. But what you heard from Biden was sort of the opening salvo of his uh, 2024 re-election campaign message. Right. You, uh, in one of your recent newsletters, you pointed out, maybe it was a podcast you do with Jane Meyer and Evan Osnos, that Biden has been, throughout his career, but particularly lately, and particularly maybe at the State of the Union, I love the phrase, lucky in his enemies. <laughs> <laughs> he really has, hasn't he? And he was the last Tuesday night. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I don't think that Joe Biden would be president if it weren't for Donald Trump. Let's let's be clear yeah. about that. Remember, he didn't run actually in 2016 uh, after the tragic death of his son, Bo, and also Barack Obama, whom he served for eight years as vice president, you know, made a very clear cut decision to throw his support behind Hillary Clinton, it looked like Biden's career was over, capped by, you know, a long and successful run as as vice president uh, and his decades of service in the Senate. And it was really the sort of challenge posed by the Trump presidency and Biden's decision that he needed to get into the race to run against Trump. That really is the reason he ended up uh, clearing the field, a very crowded field. It didn't look like it was going to do that of Democrats no, right. in 2020. And, uh, you know, Democrats have been in many ways united like nothing else by Donald Trump. And so there's there's that hanging out there. Uh, and now he has not only Trump as an enemy who's running again, uh, a very uh, polarizing figure 
uh, who who brings Democrats out to the polls, but also these uh, very extreme House Republicans uh, is very effective because he can say it's not just Trump, but the Trumpists that I'm yeah. running against. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, there was also another part of his uh, State of the Union that, again, might have gotten missed in all the attention to the theatrics, and that was he seemed to want to reset – I want to get your take on this. To me, he seemed to want to reset the focus of the Democratic Party to, you know, we're here for middle-class America. We're here for the working-class Americans. It was almost like the old Democratic Party, right? You know, let's go back to our roots. Uh and because a lot of those blue-collar workers voted for Trump, he, he's trying to get them back, isn't he? Yeah, I'm. I, I think it's really important that you highlighted that. I also thought so. And this is your point also about it's not just the theatrics; it's pay attention to what he was seeing. And it struck me that this was kind of Biden in his comfort jo- zone, as you know, I'm just middle-class Joe, a guy from Scranton, PA, and uh, you know that's always been a theme he struck on and off. Uh, during his career as a politician. And I think it's one we haven't heard as much from him uh, when he's been president, mm -hmm. where he's really focused more on what I would describe as the twin challenges of defending democracy at home and abroad. That's more what the message of Biden's presidency has been up until now. But this sort of much more campaign season message appeared in the State of the Union. It also had a certain advantage, I think, for Biden and for Democrats of essentially kind of stealing some of the uh, the populist thunder back from Republicans and kind of making the claim that that those Republicans, the Trumps are kind of fake populists. And I'm the guy who's going to kind of set government to work for you, uh, little guy. And, you know, I mean, he certainly sounded authentic when he was railing against, uh, you know, things like annoying fees charged by credit card companies and, uh, you know, telephone and hotels yeah, and airlines hotels. <laughs> when they're not even, you know, that one, one of my favorite lines in the speech is when, you know, it's just the authentic Biden, right. When he's like, and they're, you know, they charge you a resort fee for hotels that are definitely not resorts. And <laughs> I thought, you know, this is a guy who has some relatively recent experience of looking at his credit card bill. <laughs> 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 as a lot of us, as a lot of us has. So, so you mentioned the one poll. There, there were two right before the State of the Union that were I Joe Biden, I would have found them just really devastating. One was that some 62% of the American people say, despite all they've done, and you've got to admit, as you just pointed out, they did do it. He did. It. He delivered a lot. 62% say he didn't accomplish much in his first two years. And then only 37% of Democrats, uh, I think it was the CBS poll, said that Biden should run again. I mean, it's almost like the Rodney Dangerfield of our times, right? Can't get no respect. Wouldn't that just dishearten Biden? Well, it, it really is striking. And I do think that is a theme that has run through Biden's career is repeatedly oh. being underestimated. And in some ways, that's become a kind of a political superpower for him uh, because it's a lot easier to outperform expectations uh, in many respects right. in politics. So, you know, it's it's definitely it's it's both a problem and an opportunity for Biden. But those are two different issues. So one is he clearly has a, a sales problem. 
when it comes to his record? And why is it that his accomplishments haven't broken through? And is that because of the lack of a unifying message? Is it because people don't feel the tangible uh, 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 results of those uh, legislation yet? Is it because they don't care about it uh, or they're worried about other things? So, you know, there's a lot to unpack in why it is that people don't think he's accomplished a lot when by Washington standards, uh, uh, he, he has, in fact, accomplished a lot. Then there's the other bucket, which is this question of the notable, pronounced lack of enthusiasm by the American public across the board, I should say. Uh, and yeah. that does include many Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents, as well as Republicans, who are not enthusiastic about Biden running again and are not enthusiastic about his performance as president. Biden's poll ratings, approval ratings, have consistently been the worst approval ratings of any president since modern polling began, except for Donald Trump. Except for Donald except Trump. Except for right. Donald Trump. So partially that may speak, by the way, to the kind of sclerotic mood of the American electorate in this day and age, which is to say that it's impossible for any president perhaps yep. to be seen as doing a good job. But I think there's a more specific reason that's not so much performance related that we have to talk about. And that, of course, is Biden's age. And in my view, that is what is powering a lot of the concern and the lack of enthusiasm for him running again a second term is not so much what he's done in his first term as it is the mere fact of his mm -hmm. age. At age 80, he's already the oldest president in American history. If he runs and wins a second term, he would be 86 years old at the end of the second term. That is, uh, you know, a pretty significant risk factor to introduce into American politics. So let's look at the other side of the aisle here for just a few seconds, right? Um, the word that comes to my mind when you look at the Republicans trying to get together on whether or not they really want to cut Social Security and Medicare, uh, whether they really want to stick with Ukraine, with what their economic agenda or their budget deal like really is, is disarray... Um, the accurate word to describe what we're seeing on the Republican side of the aisle? <laughs> well, it is a divided Republican Party. There's just no question about that. And of course, with Trump running again, uh, we we know, you know, there's a reason that that my husband, Peter Baker, and I called our book about Trump and his presidency, The Divider. Uh, you know, this is undoubtedly uh, the course that he will pursue as he seeks to get the Republican nomination again is maximal divisiveness. And there are many fissures, uh, both on policy lines. Uh, you mentioned already Ukraine as being one of them, very notable that you have sort of Trump and his uh, hardcore followers already, uh, you know, saying the U.S. shouldn't be providing a blank check to Ukraine, uh, essentially uh, offering support for uh, Russia and Vladimir Putin's vision. Uh, and, you know, Trump never believed that Ukraine should even be an independent country, which is an extraordinary thing. Um, so you have many potential fissure lines over policy. Uh, but also you have a, just a, a divisive figure. You have division between the House Republicans and the Senate Republicans who are taking yep, a very yep. different approach right now. And uh, I think you'll see uh, a real effort by the White House to uh, take advantage of that particular fault line, especially as they're going through these upcoming negotiations uh, on uh, uh, the debt ceiling limit. And we know that Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell have both said no, Social Security and Medicare are off the table. But there are, in fact, as the president pointed out, some Republicans 
who are insisting that Social Security and Medicare must have to be on the table, right? Which is, um, we call it the third rail, uh, but that's been a consistent message since I've been <laughs> around here of the Republican Party, back to Newt Gingrich saying the Social Security ought to just, we ought to let it wither on the vine. <laughs> well, let's just say that, um, you know, if you're a Democratic big D politician, uh, you know, this is this is this is a, an approved move in the playbook uh, to go oh, yeah. after the, the faction of Republicans who do believe this. And, you know, that's why it's effective, because there is uh, and has been for a long time a group of Republicans who uh, have pursued these kind of cuts in the name of deficit reduction. And uh, of course, it was under Donald Trump that the deficit ballooned in recent yeah. years. And uh, now uh, the government is looking at having to pay uh, the price for that and being very much uh, divided over what approach they should take. Yeah. Uh, interesting to see Donald Trump himself, right, criticize Republicans who want to cut Social Security and Medicare. So uh, it's, all, it's all over the place. But it does raise one issue that I'm sure you're dealing with at The New Yorker. We had... Uh, Carl uh, Hulse from the New York Times, our good friend and yours, uh, on last week, who talked about the fact that even at the New York Times also, they're really wrestling with this question of how do you in the media, how do we in the media handle lies on the part of politicians? I mean, out, stuff we know is absolutely not true. That's a challenge, <laughs> isn't it? Absolutely. Look, Bill, we live in a golden age of shamelessness. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, look, Washington, any capital city uh, has always had its share of hypocrites and charlatans, and, yeah, yeah. you know, people selling you, uh, you know, a bottle <laughs> of snake oil. But uh, it seems that, you know, Donald Trump pointed the way toward uh, an era of shamelessness that we could hardly, you know, have believed, uh, you know, would would have political resonance. And yet, nonetheless, we're talking about a, a, a post-truth world here where millions and millions of Americans fell for Trump's big lie about the 2020 election, uh, including, by the way, dozens and dozens of members of Congress. And, you know, it, it gets a little bit lost in Democrats' relief at the outcome of last fall's midterm election, which could have been much worse for them. Uh, but in a way, they sort of overcorrected. Uh, and while election deniers lost many key statewide races last year, you know, for governorships and, and for mm -hmm. Senate races, uh, you know, it, it can get lost that two-thirds of the House Republican Conference back in uh, January of 2021 actually voted not to certify the election that Joe Biden right. uh, won uh, without any significant evidence uh, that would be warranting of overturning that election. That is uh, to say that the House Republican Conference today is dominated uh, by election deniers. And this is an extraordinary thing. So you talk about like, well, what do we do about lies? You know, we're living in an environment in which you know, certainly both parties uh, and politicians in both parties uh, often misrepresent things or offer untruths or misleading things or put spin on the ball. But we're also talking about not only that regular kind of political lying, but uh, the embrace by one of our two political parties of uh, essentially a, a massive deception in the effort to overturn election and, and, and re retain power. And that that also leads into this um, 
kind of wave of investigations, right, that the new House leadership uh, is has announced and they've already they've already begun. I mean, some of these investigations are just total nonsense, right? It seems that the that the FBI was an arm of the Democratic Party out to get Donald Trump, right? So, <laughs> how does the media handle that? Do they? I think it's a huge challenge. Uh, you know, I've seen across the board, you know, some people won't even use the full name of this uh, subcommittee on the weaponization of weaponization, the government. Right. They'll say yeah. that, you know, on on the alleged weaponization or something like that. But one thing I've, I've watching Donald Trump, you gain a new appreciation and, and Republicans like Jim Jordan, who have, you know, sort of carried his water on Capitol Hill. You realize how propaganda works and disinformation works. It, it works not because you expect everybody, uh, and certainly not your opponents, to believe uh, every crazy thing you're saying, but because you set the contours of the debate, because you implant enough uncertainty, enough questions about the person. Uh, to this day, uh, um, we're just listening uh, to a focus group uh, 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 that... Um, uh, the re- Republican, the never Trump Republican, Sarah Longwell, uh, was conducting. She does this regularly with a, this was a group of um, 2016 Trump voters who then switched and were 2020 Biden voters. So they're very ah. crucial for the Democrats, obviously, uh, running again in 2024, this group, right? Uh, and again, it's a focus group, so make of it what you will. But really notable that so many of the people there still to this day explain their 2016 vote for Trump. They say, well, I just couldn't vote for Hillary. I just couldn't vote for Hillary. And if you press them, what did they not like about Hillary? Many of them said Benghazi, even though they could not explain, of course, what it is, or that it was an infection. And then even the Republicans on this Benghazi committee that spent years, quote unquote, investigating it, even they uh, produced a report in which they said, well, actually, you know, there's nothing we can can really point to. It works. Yeah. Propaganda, disinformation, it works because it implants doubts in people's mind. And especially works today because of the power of the social media, right? So it doesn't matter if the New York Times takes it seriously or if, right, NBC or CBS, right, they're still getting it out there. Well, that's right. I do think you're you're seeing the consequences of kind of parallel, non-intersecting media universes in which uh, Republicans and Democrats increasingly live. And, uh, you know, just if you live in kind of blue America, sit down, listen to a minute to Jim Jordan kind of outline where he's at in any one of these probes. And sometimes it can even be hard to follow. Uh, you know, yep. I mean, you need like an advanced degree in foxology uh, <laughs> in order to to pay attention to some of this stuff. It's just a completely alternate narrative. It's not aimed at you and me. All right. So uh, before we take a break, I just have to. This is the ultimate Washington insider question. I recognize that, and I take blame for it. But uh, you know them both, I'm sure. Uh, how do you think Jeff Zients, uh fits into the job and the incredible job that Ron Klain did as chief of staff. Is that going to make a big difference in the Biden White House? 
You know, I I think it's important and not just a a Washington insider question to ask about the role of White House chief of staff, which really is uh, one of the most important jobs, if not the most transparent jobs in Washington. And, uh, you know, the modern presidency has become very, very dependent on uh, chiefs of staff. I, I would argue if you look at Trump's four chiefs of staff, that actually tells the story of his presidency in many ways. Um, Ron Klein, Biden's first chief of staff, was an extremely hands-on manager of almost everything. He married the politics and the policy. He was, uh, in some ways, probably one of the strongest chiefs of staff figures we've seen in recent years. Contrast that, I think Jeff Zients, uh, you know, he is hailed as perhaps one of the best managers of his time, uh, uh, just a great leader of institutions, but he's also a technocrat. And I think it really suggests that there's going to be quite a different model uh, going forward in the Biden White House. Biden is expected to announce his campaign for re-election. It's very likely that the uh, uh, Zions is not going to be running that campaign from his purchase White House chief of staff, which, by the way, many previous chiefs of staff have done. Have done, have essentially, right. you know, led the campaign like Jim Baker, the subject of mm-hmm. a biography that uh, uh, Peter and I did. Uh, Baker uh, ran Reagan's re-election campaign from his purchase, White House chief of staff then returned very reluctantly in 1992 to run George H.W. Bush's re-election campaign from the perch as White House chief of staff, uh, uh, leaving the secretary of state role to do that. Uh, Zients is not going to run the campaign. He's going to run, in a sense, everything else. And he's he's seen as a great manager, but it's a model that sets up potentially some some friction inside the White House, uh, you know, issues around communication and who's really in charge. And uh, we'll see. Uh, He's also not a lifetime insider in Biden world, which by all accounts is a pretty insular world where the president is is very comfortable with people who've been with him for a very long time. Right. So Ron Klain will be with the campaign. Jeff Sainz will be running the government, probably, is what it is. Uh, And on that point, that leads us right into 2024, which uh, let's jump into after a quick break here uh, on the uh, Bill Press Pod. Susan, hold on. We'll be right back with you. And for today's podcast with Susan Glasser, I want to give a shout out to two of our good labor union friends who were in the news last week, the Iron Workers and the Laborers Union. At the State of the Union address, President Joe Biden had invited a young iron worker, a young woman iron worker, Saria Gwyn May from Ohio, who is one of the iron workers going to be working on rebuilding that Brent Spence Bridge over the Ohio River. She was in the gallery with First Lady Jill Biden. And then the very next day, President Biden went out to DeForest, Wisconsin, to visit the training center of the Laborers International Union of North America, or LIUNA, both the iron workers and the laborers, longtime sponsors of the Bill Press Pod. We were glad to see them get the president's attention, and we salute them and thank them again for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back with today's podcast. Our guest, Susan Glasser, well, she wears so many hats, it's hard to keep track of. She's certainly a staff writer for The New Yorker, writes her weekly column, Life in Biden's Washington, also co-host of the Political Scene podcast with Jane Mayer and Evan Osnos. And co-author with her husband, Peter Baker, of um, The Man Who Ran Washington, all about James Baker a few years ago, and most recently, The Divider, about the Donald Trump presidency. Uh, Susan, good to have you back on uh, the Bill Press Pod. So was Joe Biden's State of the Union address, is there any doubt afterward that he's going to, plans to run in 2024? (laughs) <laughs> well, thank you, Bill. I would say it sure sounded an awful lot like a, a declaration of candidacy to me, uh, the round one of uh, the Biden for President 2024 campaign. Yeah. All right. So this week, uh, Nikki Haley will be the first Demo- Republican to actually stand up and say, I'm going to run in the primary against Donald Trump. She makes that announcement in South Carolina. Then she's going to North New Hampshire and Iowa, which are still the first two states for the Republicans. Um, How's that going to play out? And she certainly won't be alone, will she, Susan? Well, that's right. I think it's it's more the beginning of the actual campaign season that we're looking at here rather than anyone anticipating it's going to be a Nikki Haley versus Donald Trump matchup. Of course, right now, Trump remains uh, the national leader in the polls for Republicans. Uh, he remains uh, ahead in almost all surveys. Uh, and Nikki Haley, I think, is is one of a number of former Trump administration cabinet officials who is sort of stuck in in the single digits in in most surveys. Now, she has some formidable political chops. She's a former governor of South Carolina, uh, you know, very uh, ambitious. She had not had previous experience at the national level. She very quickly established a high profile uh, out of a job that isn't always so high profile, that Trump's United Nations ambassador. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, she's used that to acquire certain kind of national security chops that she, I think, will emphasize in her bid for the presidency, uh, you know, sort of the more traditional uh, hawkish national security pro-Israel wing of the Republican Party is is part of what Nikki Haley looks to uh, be calling on for support. But several Republicans have said in the last few days that if you run against Donald Trump, you got to be prepared, right, that he's going to be merciless in taking you on. So far, he seems to be sparing Nikki Haley and directing 
most of his fire against Ron DeSantis. <laughs> well, you know, you? As, a, as, a, as, a, as a number of people in, in Washington have said to me, you know, in recent weeks, it does look like Nikki Haley is the first out of the gate to announce for vice president. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, there's something yeah. to be said for Trump's estimation of Haley uh, is such that he's not uh, directing withering fire in her direction, but more of sort of patronizing, well, she should run if she wants to mm-hmm. kind of a thing. And that does certainly give you a sense of at what level he estimates the threat from Haley uh, uh, at this moment in time. DeSantis uh, and Trump is shaping up as the grudge match of the uh, 2024 primary season. Donald Trump says, and and I think he has some basis for saying this, by the way, that, you know, Ron DeSantis would be nobody without me. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it is a, a reminder that DeSantis was essentially an obscure Republican a far-right congressman in the Freedom Caucus from Florida in 2018 when he ran and was losing uh, a primary to run for governor in, in Florida and essentially retooled his campaign to become the Trumpiest candidate in a bid, successful bid for Trump's endorsement. He even, to me, the, the sort of iconic uh, thing to watch from that campaign was the campaign commercial in which he dressed his infant child in a Make America Great Again onesie, uh, (laughs) read uh, a story to his toddler daughter, which was how to build Trump's wall, and basically (laughs) declared himself be the Trump candidate for governor of Florida. It worked. And of course, the rest, uh, you know, as they say, is is history. But um, I do think DeSantis's challenge is being untested at the national level, and yet so much burden of expectation is now upon him. Many, many Republicans are saying they're sick and tired of Donald Trump, not, by the way, because he led an insurrection uh, to overturn the results of the election uh, or any of the other things that he did, but more because they fear that he's a loser. And yet the burden of that disaffected Republican kind of party leadership is falling basically on the shoulders of Ron DeSantis. Well, what if he implodes? What if he doesn't really have what it takes? Uh, you mm-hmm. know, then I think Republicans uh, are going to end up once again with Donald Trump. Is Donald Trump's real opponent in 2024? Uh, none of the people we've talked about, not even Mike Pence or Mike Pompeo or, or Chris Sununu, but maybe a guy named Jack Smith. <laughs> who is the special counsel looking into both the document situation and the insurrection, Trump's role in the insurrection? Uh, well, you know, I, this is where, very... Where is, that, where is that going in your judgment? <laughs> you know, many people have uh, have uh, uh, faltered on the making predictions out of the Justice Department. Because remember, mm-hmm. in the end, Jack Smith is a special counsel, but ultimately it actually will be up to Merrick Garland, the attorney general, to make the final call because he's not an independent counsel. He's a special counsel. He still has to ultimately make a recommendation to the attorney general. And it will be very hard, of course, for the attorney general to say no if Smith recommends prosecuting uh, Donald Trump. Uh, that it presumably will happen pretty soon, but inevitably it will be tangled up in the politics of the election year. And Trump might even benefit uh, if he were to be indicted. And as you know, mm. Trump loves nothing more than to claim that he's a victim and to offer Americans grievance politics. Right, well, right. This would be the ultimate grievance for him, certainly. So, uh, you know, there's that 
risk factor as well. But of course, there are you know many, many Americans who are very frustrated at both the slow pace of the investigations of Donald Trump. It's been more than two years, after all, since he left office. Uh, and there's a strong sense uh, you know, among many Americans that that Trump has escaped accountability and has been able to operate with impunity, uh, doing things that many other people would not be able to get away with. And so, you know, it's 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 really a political mess for any special counsel and attorney general. But I do think we're headed towards some sort of resolution, presumably in the coming months, one way or the other. Well, I was going to ask you that. It seems that Jack Smith does have maybe not an official, but an unofficial deadline, right? That he's got to do whatever he's going to do before the 2024 campaign is fully underway. Well, that's right. Look, that partially shaped Donald Trump's calculation for uh, why he announced so early. And I think that's important for people to note. Like one of the reasons Trump is the only guy officially announced in the Republican field is that he was determined to do so immediately after the November midterm elections, in part to clear the field of would-be Republican challengers, but also uh, in order to, he thought, preempt the Justice Department and to make it harder for them to issue any indictment of him once he was an official presidential Mm -hmm. candidate. Right, exactly. Well, we'll see how that plays out. I have to tell you, uh, Susan, nobody keeps their eye better on the uh, Washington scene than you do. I, I'm old enough to remember uh, reading Janet Flanner from Paris every week in The New Yorker and then reading Elizabeth Drew from Washington in The New Yorker. And what a great thrill it is to now read Susan Glasser every week, the letter from Biden's Washington. Uh, and you're the best of them all, Susan. Thank you for all the good work you do. And thank you for taking your time to join us on the Bill Press Pod today. Well, Bill, you're terrific. I really appreciate the kind words and most of all, the great conversation that you offer every week. Thank you so much. And that's it for today with Susan Glasser. Again, you can catch Susan Glasser every week in The New Yorker and her great, insightful letter from Biden's Washington. Another busy week here in the nation's capital and on American politics in general with Nikki Haley kicking off the 2024 presidential campaign. Well, at least the second one to join in after Donald Trump. We'll talk about that and a whole lot more with our roundtable reporters on Friday. That's the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. So have a great week, folks. Uh, Stay safe, stay healthy, and come back and see us on Friday for the next roundtable on the Bill Press Pod.